0: Yes. Awesome. I, lo- I love that song. I, I really do. Um, it reminds me, it was all over the radio back when I was first dating my wife, Allie. So I love it. Just good memories. And <laughs> the other night I was telling her like, oh, we're, you know, this weekend we're playing Use Somebody, like, you know, that's like our, us. And she was like, I don't remember that song. <laughs> I'm like <"Ugh." laughs> I'm all alone in the world. <laughs> Hey, right, so welcome back to our series, Can People Really Change? Um, in case you're, you're new or you missed a few, here's what we're doing. Uh, throughout the series, week by week, we're taking all the different important aspects of our life, you know, financial, physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever, we're taking all those parts of our lives and we're seeing if God wants to do anything with those, and if so, can he really change them for us? And if you're being honest, you're probably like me, we just are desperate for change, Right? like We all have at least one, probably multiple little pockets of our lives where we, just, we can't ever change, and it makes us feel imprisoned. It makes us feel trapped, and so that's what we're tackling in this series. We're going to take all the important aspects of our lives and run them through the five steps towards actual freedom and actual change. Here's what those look like. They're, it's this. There's grace, two types of grace, one grace that forgives and the other grace that changes us internally. Changes our hearts so that we can go change externally. Both of those two things must come first and only Jesus can do that for you. Can't do that for yourself. After that, the last three steps are the things that we have to do for ourselves. This is where we put skin in the game and that's vision, intent, and strategy. I don't have time right now to re-explain every single one of those steps individually. I'll do that throughout the talk. But when we combine all five of those, then we begin to see actual freedom and we see actual change. So a couple weeks ago, Jim set this up for us, and last week he talked about family, and and today we're going to talk about social life, all right, social life, so your your individual social circles, the people around you who who aren't family, and then also we're going to talk about society at large, which I think is very relevant right now. Like if you own a smartphone or a TV or you read the newspaper, then you know that like the loudest words in our current culture right now are social justice and equal rights and you you can't check the news without seeing some new celebrity stand up for some new something and Facebook is littered with people shouting their opinions at one another And so rather than avoid this topic because it seems too political or too opinionated or whatever, I think we should look at what God has to say about it and see if we're lining up with it. That's what we're tackling today. These questions of, does God really want to change our society? Does he care? And does God really want to change our relationship with the people around us, our social circles, our friends, our our coworkers, our neighbors? And if so, what does that change even look like? That's what we're out for today. Uh, the whole series, you're gonna hear this every single weekend, the whole series is based on this verse from Galatians 5.1 written by a guy named Paul, and it goes like this. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he goes, so stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So he says, hey, Jesus set us free so that we could live like free people, so don't go crawling back to the old jail cell of your former life, we're free now. And that's great, you know, like awesome, I'm free, I love that, I like being free, but the follow-up question is immediately, okay, so we're free, I'm free so that what? So that I can do what? What am I supposed to do with my freedom? And Paul actually answers that just a few verses earlier, he says this, he says he redeemed us in order that, so Jesus set us free so that the blessing given to Abraham Might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. That's why we've been set free. Now, like I'm a pastor, I love the Bible. I read it all the time. I spend time around other people who work at a church. We talk about this a lot. I still don't wake up every single morning, you know, look in the mirror and go. You bring that blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles, Ben. You got this. Like, what does this even mean for us? Like, what, what does this whole thing mean? I want to explain it real quick. I'm going to quickly detail the blessing of, him, of Abraham and its importance in our lives. And probably for the next, like, five minutes, you're going to be like, what does this have to do with my friendships and coworkers and society? I promise it'll make sense. But first, we have to understand the blessing of Abraham. So so in this verse, Paul says that anyone who has put their faith in Jesus, here's what happens. For the people who are Christians, we first of all receive whatever the blessing of Abraham is, and then also Jesus plans on giving that blessing to everyone around us through us. That's the reason we're free, to become conduits for whatever the blessing of Abraham is. So what is the blessing of Abraham? Uh, the blessing of Abraham... Uh, if you don't know who Abraham is, uh, some of us do, some of us don't. Abraham's an important guy for, for the Jewish culture. Um, very important for us, too. Uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, like, like I did, then you know that Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons of Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. Like, you know that by heart. I'm still conditioned to be like, right hand, left hand, right leg, left leg, turn around, sit down, you know. Um, there's a few people, you know, there's some people in here that's like, that's why I don't do church right there. I'm like, you know, I get it. I've been wounded. (laughs) Um, But that is who he is. He's the father. Like, all the Jewish people could trace their lineage back to one man, and it's Abraham. He's an important guy. And the entire reason that he's important in the first place is specifically because of this blessing. So let's look at the blessing. This is God speaking to Abraham, and now to you and I, because of Jesus. This is the blessing. I will make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. You will become a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the blessing to Abraham and the blessing to us. Quick time out. Um, I've spent about a decade not believing in any of this stuff and actively being a skeptic against it. And I I used to have problems with this language of like, I will curse those who curse you, so I understand if you have problems with that. I don't have issues with it anymore that... Now that I understand it, um, so this curse that he says, when he says I'll curse those who curse you, it's not some like you know Halloweeny you know, like abracadabra like you cut someone off in traffic and they flip you off and so God turns them into a frog or something like that. That's not what curse means. Curse just means if you're living under a curse, it's because you are not living under His blessing. So God says the people who reject me will not receive my blessing. That just makes sense, and we can't blame God for that. That's that's what that means. But let's not focus on the curse. Let's focus on the uh, the blessing as an entirety, as a whole. What does this mean for us in 2017 now that we've inherited it? And it means three things. All right, the first thing it means is this, we are God's people. We're God's people. He says, "I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you." We're God's people. In in this uh, specific blessing, he uses the metaphor of nation. In the future, uh, like later in the Bible, he uses the metaphor of sons and heirs and family. And so what this blessing means is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we immediately become God's family. Immediately, so you don't have to, if you've done that, you don't have to uh, stay awake at night wondering whether or not you're gonna go to hell when you die. You're not going to, all right? This is an irrevocable promise, and you, and you might be going, but I've been so unfaithful over my life. I know, I get it. I have too. But he has not been unfaithful, and he'll keep his blessing and the promise that your family know. So that's good. That's the first thing the blessing means for us. We're God's people. Here's the second thing it means it means God takes care of his people. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who. He takes care of us. And that's important too. It's a promise we see all over the Bible. When we become God's family, we inherit, we are adopted by the only perfect father who will ever exist. And he'll take care of us like a perfect father would. What that means is when your life hits the fan, he will give you the grace and the strength to survive. And then on the other hand, when your life is awesome, he will give you the grace and the coaching necessary so that you leverage your life for other people become a conduit. Those are the first two parts. And we like those parts of the blessing, right? Those are nice. That makes us feel warm and fuzzy. We we are God's people and God takes care of his people. It's nice and it doesn't require anything of us. Right? So like the using the five steps that we have towards actual freedom and change, these are just the first two grace parts. It's great. There's there's no vision and intent and strategy necessary on our behalf. But there's a third part to our blessing and it's a command. And this is where we have to put some skin in the game. The, the third part of our blessing that we have now inherited is this. God's people become blessings. God's people become blessings. We are supposed to be walking, talking blessings. Right away, I know I have my work cut out for me because this word blessing has lost its power today. It just has. Like, when I think of the word blessing, I immediately think of, like, great-grandma sitting on a couch covered in a plastic tarp, because for some reason, grandmas do that. Like, they're made of fabric for a reason, but they don't want stains. And she's sitting there with a photo album, and she's looking at old pictures of me as a baby, and going, oh, you were such a blessing, you know? Like, oh, you're so tiny, and you're a blessing. I, that's not how my grandma talks. <laughs> but that's how she keeps coming out of my mouth when I'm on stage. Uh, <laughs> Like she's from an old woman from New York. Um, that's what I think of just like this kind of like, that's what you call little kids like who are innocent. They're like, all their little blessings. Or uh, Christmas is coming up. Probably my favorite Christmas movie is Christmas Vacation. So I think of Uncle Lewis at the dinner table. Those of you who love that movie know what I'm talking about. You know, the blessing. I love that. That's what I think of. I just think of something that uh, when I hear that I'm supposed to become a blessing, I just think of something either weak or something totally outdated. Like I'm supposed to go door to door like with homemade cookies and little Bible verses written on them or something. I don't know how to make cookies. Like I don't know how to be a blessing, but that's too bad because back in Abraham's day, blessing was understood as a thing of power and as as a thing of strength. Let me explain this. So I was, I was studying the word blessing last week and, and here's what I learned. So anytime God speaks a blessing in the Bible, two things happen simultaneously, all right? The first one is what we assume. The first one is that his words are a promise. It's a vision, all right? So in our blessing here, he says, hey, I have a vision where you become my sons and daughters and I become your father. I have a vision where you become my people, But the second thing that happens simultaneously whenever God offers a blessing is the reason it's important in the first place, because in addition to words of promise, his words also contain power. That's intent and strategy. So God's words also have intent, where he goes, listen, I really am willing to do whatever it takes so that you become my people, followed by strategy. He sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and cover up our sinfulness and our guilt and our shame, and he caused them to come back to life so that we could come back to life too, be reu- reunited in relationship with our Father and with our family, intent and strategy. God's blessings are always, always packaged deals, so they don't just contain a vision, they also contain the intent and strategy necessary to see the vision through. So think of it like a proof of purchase. All right? You're on Amazon and you order something, click, and then you get an email in your inbox and this is your proof of purchase. It is Amazon's guarantee that whatever you just ordered will show up on your doorstep. And that's what God's blessings are. They're like proofs of promise. He promises something will happen and the words spoken out loud themselves are the guarantee, the proof that whatever he just promised will show up on your doorstep because he never goes back on his word. So with that being said, if the third part of our blessing is a commandment to us, and it says to become blessings, that we're supposed to become walking, talking blessings, what this really means is that God's people become living proof of God's promise. We are supposed to be the walking, talking, living proof, the guarantee of what God promises to the world. If I were to sum up all of God's many promises to his people in, in like one term, I would use the same term that Jesus used most often. It's the number one thing he taught on. It's the number one word out of his mouth, phrase out of his mouth. It's the kingdom of God. So, so Jesus claimed that through him, the kingdom of God was alive and here and present, Meaning through Jesus, his grace has eliminated anything that might keep you out of the kingdom of God, keep you away from his goodness and mercy and grace. And so now we're free to live in it and we're free to share that with other people. So Jesus would say, he'd walk around and go, listen, hey, the kingdom of God is finally here. And if you want to see the goodness of God, if you want to see his justice and mercy and grace and how wonderful his kingdom is, then all you have to do is look at me. And all you have to do is look at how I treat people. And for the Christians in the room who have the Spirit of Jesus living inside of them, this is now our mission too. The third part of our blessing essentially is this we are commanded to be the living proof that the good kingdom of God is here in this auditorium in Northern Colorado in 2017. That's what we're supposed to prove. So think of it like this. Let's use this as an example. If if God promises that he loves and cares for everyone in the world, which he does promise, if he promises that, who makes the promise? God does. Who has the power to carry it out? God does. But who shows up at the doorstep in answer to prayer? We do. We are the living proof of the goodness of God. We're the blessing proofs of promise. When desperate people desperately plead and pray to their God, we are God's answers to prayer. And the reason we are commanded to do this, to use the language of our blessing, is so that all people on earth will be blessed through us. Jesus Christ working in us. And with all that blessing talk, this is where our social lives come into play. Like both our relationships with our friends and neighbors and coworkers, whoever, and also society at large. Let's talk a minute about society at large. Like I said, our our current culture is absolutely obsessed, especially people my age and, and a little bit younger, obsessed with the idea of social justice. But at the same time, it's like we don't know what to do with this obsession, and so we just take to the streets with picket signs. We go join the march with, you know, for or against gay rights, for or against our president, whatever, or we spread awareness, or we jump on social media and we shout our opinions at one another and we try to win debates, but all of these pursuits for social justice, it's all just talking. There's no doing And in the end, I honestly feel like I am watching our nation just further drive a wedge in between itself, all in the name of social justice and equal rights and freedom, compassion, understanding, empathy, all that. And and here's the reason I'm even risking getting a little bit political right now, is because I truly believe this. I truly, truly believe that the only actual hope for a culture obsessed with the idea of social justice is the action, God's vision, intent, and strategy, the action of social change found within the kingdom of God. I really do believe that. I wanna read you uh, some verses that describe the kingdom of God. These verses describe the ethics and the justice and the compassion and heartbeat of the kingdom of God. As I read these, you just do the work for yourself and see whether or not these verses seem to describe exactly what our society is starving for right now. This is the kingdom of God according to, to Scripture. Isaiah says this He says, Learn to do right. Don't talk about it, go do it. Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. What about this? Rescue. Go and rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Show mercy. Go show it in who you are. Show mercy and compassion to one another. What about this? Do what is just and right. There it is again. Don't talk about it. Do it. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed. And this is important. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the immigrant, whether legal or illegal. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, to the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Don't do it. Or to sum up the heartbeat of the kingdom of God in one short sentence, it would be in 1 Corinthians, it's this, nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. Chase after what other people need before what you think you need. It's the heartbeat of the kingdom of God. It is what Jesus Christ did for us, and now he commands us to do the same. This is what the vision, intent, and strategy of social change looks like. And immediately in all of those verses, you'll notice two common denominators. The first one is who is the kingdom of God for? It's the fatherless and the widow, the immigrant, the innocent the poor, the weak, the needy, the victim. The kingdom of God blesses all people, but it is especially concerned with the down and out. And here's the second common denominator we see in these descriptions of the kingdom of God. It's our strategy. It's words like do right, seek justice, encourage, give, look out for, defend, show, deliver, rescue. Our strategy is action. It is doing something for the down and out, not just talking about what we think should be done for the down and out. This is the reason we have been set free. It's the reason, not just so that you can go to heaven when you die, but also so that we could become living proof to the world that when God says he loves you, he meant it. We are the proof of that. We are the blessing, which means it's just it's simply not enough like when when it's not enough when someone comes to us with their burdens it's not enough for us to say oh man i'm so sorry like that sucks i'll be i'll be praying like i i, I hope god does something huge for you that's not enough it's not enough because we are the something we're the proof of promise we the blessing. James puts it this way. He says this. He goes, hey, so suppose there are brothers or, or sisters who need clothes and they don't have enough to eat. Like, what good is there in your saying to them, God bless you and keep warm and, and eat well? What good is there in that if you don't give them the necessities of life? There's the word blessing again. James affirms that we are blessings. And he says, what good is a blessing? What good are we if we tell a person, God wants to feed you, and we don't immediately follow that vision by taking them to the grocery store? He says, what good is a blessing that does not follow through on what it promised? At that point, we're just defaulted promises. And this is convicting, and so what do we do with it? You know, what society, for example, what are we supposed to do? What are, we, are we supposed to walk out of the doors today and like completely change our government and the dark corners of our entertainment industry like by next week? Are we supposed to do that? Are we supposed to go and hit the books and, and like understand and solve the complicated nuances of education and social class, race, foreign politics, immigration, whatever? Are we supposed to fix that by November I don't think so. Instead, I think we should follow Jesus' lead. Because you have to remember, Jesus was eventually murdered by a political system that he never once seemed interested in changing. Not once did he tackle the problem of Roman oppression in Jerusalem. He never joined that march. You know what he did instead? He spent every single day bringing life and healing to the poor, hungry, sick, and the socially outcast or oppressed or marginalized. That is how he spent every single day of his life. The truth is that you do not see a social justice warrior in Jesus Christ. You see a social justice servant, and that's all. And my question is, what if he was being smart? What if he was being strategic? What if he knew that society at large, what if he knew that the issues are just symptoms of individuals' lives? And what if he knew that society at large isn't the problem? What we need to focus on is that society won't change until individual members of society are individually served by the living proof of the kingdom of God. What if he's being strategic? My, my four-year-old daughter summed this up perfectly the other day. Um, so she's in preschool two days a week now, and one night I'm putting her into bed, and I asked her how school went, and she goes, school was good. Uh, today I helped Ruby, one of the little girls in her class. And so I'm trying to encourage her, and I'm like, that's awesome, you know, you should help, you should always help people, I'm proud of you. What did you do to help Ruby. And then she explains that Ruby couldn't reach a door handle, and so M opened it for her, which is hilarious because my daughter is the tall girl at school who helps people reach things, which I've never, ever been, <laughs> can never serve this way, <laughs> you know? I have the, the amount of step stools I own in my home is ridiculous, like to stop, just to get to the bowls. Um, so, <laughs> so she explains that, and I encourage her, and then she gets quiet, and her, she kind of like, I can tell she's thinking so deeply about something. Whenever she does this, she either ends up saying something really profound, or she just says like, you know, I would like a cheese it or something like that. Um, so I give her a second, and finally I ask her, I'm like, hey, Em, like, what are you thinking so, so hard about? What are you thinking so deeply about? And she answers, and it's profound. She doesn't know that, of course. But if everyone on earth were to live this way, it would be the kingdom of God perfected. I ask her what she's thinking so deeply about, and, and she replies and she says it just like this, as if she's weighing every single word. She goes, I'm just I'm just trying to be a good person. And when someone needs my help, then they get my help. It is the kingdom of God in one sentence. She's four. I was like, you're a prophet. <laughs> I'm like, Who's your real father? <laughs> it's profound. It's, it's true. Maybe that's a little piece of what Jesus meant when he said we should become like children. Maybe they just got some stuff figured out that we lost when we grew up. It's good stuff. So my question is this today. My question is, is it possible or is it, am I being ideal when I say this? Is it idealistic, is it naive to think that instead of shouting about political policy change or shouting about how groups need to think differently, instead Jesus just simply wants us to literally bring social change into reality by serving our neighbor's and our co-workers, and our friends. My question, basically, is Jesus powerful enough? Is he actually powerful enough to take our seemingly insignificant acts of service and use them to change the world?
1: This is me, I got four sisters, and this is all of us burning in hell. And this, is just, this is just a tattoo that evolved from from that part of my life. And I truly believed this until I found God.
2: I'm Jody, and I've been a part of Flatirons for probably 15, 16 years.
1: I'm Bruce Lemoyne. I've uh, been going to Flatirons for about five years now. We've been in Lafayette, been married for 30 years, and lived next to Jody for the last 14 years, and we were introduced, or reintroduced ourselves probably five years
2: ago. Uh, Back in July of 2012, I was recovering from ACL surgery, got up early in the morning to go to a PT appointment and noticed there were a lot of cars in front of Bruce's house. And it was 6.30 in the morning, so I knew something had happened that wasn't good. And sometime in the afternoon, I saw a story about a, a young man who had killed himself near our house. And that was Keith, Bruce's son.
1: When Keith was about 14 years old, he uh, got a bad motorcycle accident and bruised his temporal lobes and his frontal lobes and was in a coma for three weeks, didn't actually know who he was. Uh, things were just never the same with him after that head injury and uh, he became real depressed. Uh, so he walked about a mile away from our house and, and hung himself and that's what Jody had seen that afternoon. Uh, so we went down, we went down there, Becky and I unhung him, uh, called the police and I ran up the front of the hill where he'd done it, and I punched a fence post and said, F you, God, and why did you do this to me? Well, up until that point in my life, I was 50 years old. I'd been trying to do it on my own and never had any, never had God in my life. And his girlfriend's mother had been coming to Flatirons for some time. And so this was a Thursday. They She invited me to come to the church on Sunday. After being at church just that one time, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do it on my own and that. God was the only way that I was gonna get through this.
2: Well, after I found out what happened, I just didn't know what to say. I didn't, I didn't even know where to begin. Um, I had never met them, and so I never went over. I wasn't sure I could possibly bring any comfort. Um, so I just never went. But during church, Jim was talking about your
0: neighbor. Maybe, throwing this out here, Maybe before we go try to change the world, we should see if our neighbor needs some help. What do you think?
2: And I knew, I knew what God was telling me to do. I, I knew that this was it. This was the end of the road. You need to go say something. Uh, the problem was I couldn't think of anything to say.
0: I'm gonna tell you a story. Last night, I had a lady come up to me in the lobby. She was in tears. She goes, my son's 21 and my next door neighbor, they have a son's 21, but he committed suicide
1: this year. And I've never spoken to him. And I've never gone over it. I've wanted to over and over. As a matter of fact, their son painted the trim on my house. And we had some great
0: conversations. But I don't don't know, should I go ring their doorbell? I'm like, just go. Just go ring their doorbell and just go. I want to tell you something that your son told me back in the summer. He says, I'm I'm, going to do that.
1: So in the meantime, in the background, we didn't know all this was going on. Uh, My wife and I, my wife was basically... Uh, asking for a sign from God to let us know what to do or how to handle or where to go with it—just any kind of sign—and so we came to church Sunday after Jody had talked to Jim on Saturday night, and I just from from the from the story Jim was telling up on stage and everything, I just put two two and two together, and I went down and I talked to Jim about this. I said, you know, I'm the guy that you're talking about. And this was definitely a sign. This was this was a miracle from God, you know, to put all these pieces together, to us just starting to go to church, uh, to, her, to her talking to you, to me talking to you, and just it all fitting together. It's just, it's a miracle.
2: So now it's Sunday morning. I'm upstairs, still convinced I'm going to go over. I'm still in my pajamas, and I'm practicing out loud what I'm going to say in hopes of, and a practice will keep me from saying something stupid. And the door, there's a knock on the door.
1: And then I knocked on Jody's door and she was dressed like she was getting ready to go to a ball or
2: something. <laughs> no, <laughs> she was not. <laughs> but I opened the door and he turned around and he said, oh, you are home. I don't know if you remember this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he said, you go to Flatirons? And then he said, you're, "They were talking about you this morning." And <laughs> I said, "Yeah." And he said, "I just want you to know, you're welcome at my house anytime." And then it was all over with the crying.
1: Yeah, uh, I didn't think I was losing out any opportunities. And if she was coming to Flatirons, I figured, well, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's an opportunity to fellowship with somebody. Because especially in that time in our, our, our walk, we were just, you know, this is months into our walk. I was, I was looking for any kind of connection. To to godly people in this this church, and in Keith's suicide note, he, you know, he didn't feel like he deserved us as parents. So that was really that was really the goodness that needed to come out of here. I wanted to honor my son by doing doing things to 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 honor him. Yeah, fathers in the field, what a blessing! Huh? You know, we you guys had a calling for for people to volunteer for that, and so I made sure I was I applied for that and went through the process of getting that and. You know, with Sage, he's, it's, it's amazing what God does, you know. He asked me what happened to my son. This is probably about eight months into, into knowing him. He asked me what happened with my son. I said, do you really want to know it? Do you want an honest answer? So I told him, he says, you know what, Bruce? I feel really sorry for you. He says, but if that wouldn't have happened, then we would have never met. So it's like, you're right. And you know, and he's got such insight. And you know, I'm doing something good for him that my son would be proud of. and. It takes effort on everybody's part, right? It takes effort. You have to be intentional. You have to fellowship. You can't just come to church on Sundays and think everything's going to be good. Boy, if you want a peaceful life and you really want to make a change, you got to do all the rest of the stuff too, you know.
2: I think when we, when something happens in our life and we need to do something about it, we need to remember that we're not responsible for the outcome. We're responsible for the obedience. And I know that God could have used someone else to put this all together and get Bruce and Becky to him. But he let me play a part. And I'm so grateful.
1: And people ask me why I don't get rid of this. It's just because I if I get rid of this and I, you know, maybe I would forget where I came from and you know what this all means.
0: So what if Jesus was wise when he said that that's what it's all about? These small little acts of service. I think about that story. All Jody did was one step in the right direction. Conversation with Jim in the lobby. A decision to care for her neighbors. That one small little act of service that God used to change the course of Bruce and Becky's lives. It's incredible. This one small little act that now has led to huge change. I've known Bruce for a few years. He used to lead down in student ministry back when me me and my buddy Zach led student ministry. I've only known Bruce since that moment. He's such a good man. Like when I think of Bruce, if I were to pick one word for Bruce, it's servant for sure. He just like understood Jesus and he got it. And God's doing huge things through it, right? Like he takes Bruce, who's lost a son, and combines him with Sage, who lost a dad. What if that's what it's all about? I feel convicted about this. I feel very convicted, I'm gonna be honest with you. I have a new excuse every single week for why I'm too broke or too busy or too inadequate to just look around and help out someone who could use my help. And if I'm being very vulnerable with you, I use teaching and working at a church as a free pass to take the minimal amount of my free time and devote it to myself. And terrifyingly, Jesus has an entire parable dedicated to people like me Pastors are famous for this. Oh, An entire parable about priests who won't stop and help the person who's beaten and bloody on the side of the road because they have to get to the temple. They have a talk to give. They have the next service. Whatever. I feel convicted about this. I need to change this part of my life, especially When I think back on moments in my own life in the past when someone did something very simple for me and it profoundly affected me, I think back when I was like 10 or 11 and my family was the brokest we've ever been in our lives. I remember dad one day weeping over a box of unpaid bills. And I remember dad saying like, you know, I love, love you guys and we love you and, and we're gonna be okay and we're gonna do a lot of fun things this Christmas, but, you know, we're not gonna be able to do Christmas presents and, and I, would, I didn't care about the presents. I cared about how much it was eating Dad up I was, and scared too and we were very poor in spirit that year but at the same time, Jesus promised that in the kingdom of God, the poor in spirit are blessed and that Christmas Eve, the doorbell rang And who was it? It wasn't God. It was God inside the living proof of his promise. It was just our buddies from church. They brought in trunk loads of Christmas presents. Still the best Christmas I've ever had. Something simple, and it's obviously profoundly affected me. I think back to last year, when I was having this really dark season of life, me and my, my little family, we moved into our little new home. And at the same time, this was before I went to the doctor and got help. And so I was trapped in this fog of depression and anxiety, just completely trapped. At the same time, I'm working crazy nonstop hours. And, and so at the end of the day, I didn't have the time or the money to buy a lawnmower. And I would get home late from work and the grass, stood. it was like this physical reminder for me every time I got home, this foot-tall physical reminder that my life is out of control. You know, that I'm, that I'm too broken and too busy and too broke and too sad to even just like take care of this good thing that God gave me, you know, like my home. And I, that was a season of mourning and weeping for me. But at the same time, Jesus promised that those who mourn and those who weep are blessed in the kingdom of God. And I got home late one, one night to discover that the living proof of that promise had mowed my lawn earlier that day. It was my neighbors, they go here. They're, my kind neighbors, two houses down, just mowed my lawn like to be kind to my family. And I know it sounds dumb and trivial. I can't explain it other than in that season of my life, it was so much more than like freshly mowed grass. It had nothing to do with like this task that I no longer am responsible for. It felt like this weight was lifted off of my chest for just enough time for me to catch a breath and then just keep on surviving. I have been deeply impacted by other people doing simple things for me, and it's profoundly affected me. And so at the same time, I wonder to myself, why am I not doing this for anyone else? Maybe you feel the same. Maybe you feel convicted. You're going, why am I, why? That's my question. Why aren't we doing this for other people? And I think that there's two like, foundational reasons that we don't take seriously our command to serve other people as living proof of the goodness of God. I think there's two reasons. The first one is this. We don't see others like God sees them. We don't see other people like God sees them. I know that's churchy. It looks like it would be written in cursive on a coffee mug or something. But let me explain it. It's important. All throughout the Bible, we're taught, we're taught that everyone is made in the image of God, not just Christians. Every living human being is designed and crafted in the image and the likeness of God. God. And honestly, if we could actually truly wrap our minds around that and understand that every living human being is made in the image of God, I don't think that we would find ourselves neglecting people. And I don't think that we would find ourselves shouting at each other on Facebook. And I don't think that we would find ourselves hating each other. It's just difficult to hate someone that you understand has been designed and crafted by God. He put blood and sweat and tears into that person. You know who it's easy to hate? Who it's easy to neglect and shout at? It's someone that you've labeled. It's someone we've stamped a label on. And we've gone, they're nothing more than just a Republican or just a Democrat. They're just a pro-lifer, just a pro-choicer. Yeah, he's just a military brat. Yeah, okay, but he's just a millionaire athlete. Yeah, he's ju- they're just liberal, just conservative. He's just a cop, just a criminal, racist, bigot, terrorist. They're just gay. And they're just homophobes. I mean, if you've been following the news, you know what I'm talking about. There there is only one way that a powerful movie producer ends up taking advantage of so many women. You only wind up in that place if you spent a lifetime of viewing women not as God's craft, God's daughters, but instead viewing them as products. They sell box office tickets. You can take advantage of a woman when you think of her as only, you know, a, a body with the right money-making measurement. At that point, you can line 10 of them up naked, analyze them like objects, and pick the body that will make you the most money. Tell the others good luck and lose a few pounds if you want to be famous. But let's not do what Christians are notorious for. let's, Let's not point the finger at other people and go, look how messed up they are. Let's point the finger at ourselves. How are we doing this right now? Who have we labeled? Who are we not understanding to be the image of God walking around? How have we used this to neglect the people who need us or to hate people? And here's a simple but radical idea. What if we... Were to treat every human being on earth as if they were actually the image of God, crafted and designed by him, and treat them like that regardless of what they believe and regardless of how they treat us. Because here's the truth. Another per- this is the truth in the kingdom of God. Another person's opinion, another person's social class or race, ethnicity, political stance, even another person's religion. There is nothing that can cancel out the image of God within a person. There's nothing. What if we lived like that? I mean, God didn't judge us based on our circumstances or our behavior, thankfully. That's the point of grace. So what right do we have to judge others based on the same things? We don't have it. We don't have that right. That's the first reason I think that that we f- we find ourselves just neglecting people possibly even hating them we just don't see them as God sees them images of God if we did I think that we would do a lot more doing and a lot less talking I think we would do a lot less hurting and a lot more helping Then the second reason that I think that we don't just sacrifice ourselves to serve other people, to be living proof of the goodness of God. I think the other reason is we don't see ourselves like God sees us. We just can't possibly imagine that we have anything at all to offer, and so we don't even try. But Jody is such incredible proof of this I mean, in fact, when we brought her and Bruce into film, she like almost—you could tell she almost like felt bad, which she shouldn't have—and she was like, "You realize I have almost nothing to do with this, right?" And I was like, "I know. That's why it's great." <laughs> it's true. She made one step in the right direction, like I talked about, and God used that in under twenty-four hours to change the course of Bruce and Becky's lives, to give them their sign. And God did all of that, catch this, before Jody was even finished rehearsing in her pajamas. That's crazy. God shows up with all the power. He commands us to show up at the doorstep and knock. That's what he commands of us. We're not too far gone for this. We can become living proof that the good kingdom of God is alive and here and well. We're the proof of it. But something's got to change in our hearts. Something first has to change in the way we see ourselves and the way we see other people. And listen, we can't, we cannot rely on a change in political policy or people we disagree with finally changing what they think. It won't work. In my personal opinion, the whole political and behavior modification approach is what landed our nation in this great cultural divide right now. This nonstop chattering of the government needs to do this for us, and he needs to change, and she needs to change, and this whole group over there, they're wrong. They need to be different. This is not helping us. Nothing is changing for the better. Instead, I believe the only hope for a society divided is found in the justice, righteousness, grace, peace, and mercy offered only in the kingdom of God, and it starts with us proving it to the world. But... It starts with us proving it to the world. How do we do that? It's simple. In Emery's words, if someone needs our help, they get it. Like I said, I feel so convicted about this. And so here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna walk us through the five steps towards actual freedom and actual change. These five things are on the back of your programs. Get those out right now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk you through what all five of these steps look like for me personally. Here's what I am in, on a stage in front of you committing myself to. I'm gonna walk you through what these look like for me. Maybe it looks similar for you. Write them down, I'm gonna give you questions. Write answers down on this program, put it in your phone, whatever. If you wanna take it seriously, write it down somewhere or you'll forget. Here's the first step, grace. This comes from Jesus and Jesus only. This is the kind of grace that forgives us and frees us from the results of our sin. So we are free to become living proof that the good kingdom of God is here. We're, we're free to do that. So my question for you is, what are you believing about yourself or other people that does not line up with what God says is true? We can't become living proof until we ask for forgiveness for this. What are you believing about yourself or other people that does not line up with what God says is true? For me, I'll be honest, I have believed the lie that all I'm really good for is what I'm currently doing believe the lie that God wants me on a stage and out of other people's lives cuz I'm only going to screw it up. And if I'm being really honest and vulnerable with you, I'll let you know that I've labeled people. For sure I've labeled people. The way I do that is I if someone's got a, an opinion or a belief contrary to mine, I assume I go, you know what? I abandon you to your own conclusion. I abandon you to just figure out for yourself that you're wrong. And I use that to distance myself from other people. What have you believed about yourself or someone else that does not line up with what God says is true? Step two, the other kind of grace. Also, only Jesus can do this for us. This is the kind where Jesus changes us internally so that we can change externally. So now that it is our command to be the living proof of how good God is, what is one thing that needs to change inside of you? What is one thing you need to ask God to change inside of you this week? For me, I am asking for the compassion and attention to not just sprint through every single day of my life with my head down and my mind on the next thing, like the awareness to just slow down and look around and see if there's any situation or any relationship in which I can be the living proof of the goodness of God's kingdom. That's what I'm asking for. What is one thing you need to ask God to change about you on the inside so that you can change on the outside? The last three, this is where we gotta put skin in the game. Vision, what would your life look like if, you, if it lined up with everything we just talked about today? What would life look like? Here's possibly the most important thing to write down right now. The vision, who is this for? Write down one name. Just one person that is around you. You don't have to be best friends. You don't even have to know their name yet. Could just be the coworker five cubicles down. Write down one person that you believe desperately needs the living proof that God is good. Who needs you to show up this week? What does your change in that interaction with that person look like? For me, I'm not going to tell you my my person's name out loud from stage, uh, but I definitely know that my interaction cannot continue looking like four random texts, you know, four times a year. It can't. I got to be intentional. I have to devote myself to being in a relationship with this person, but the vision of it is that Hopefully, please God, this person gets to see his goodness somehow through me. Who's your person? What's your vision? Number four, intent. Are you actually willing to do whatever it takes to see that vision become a reality? Basically, are you in? And also, are you sure? Because the kingdom of God revolves around sacrifice and service of others. And if you're in the last step, strategy, with, with Jesus guiding you and giving you strength, what do you need to start doing differently today? So are you ready to become living proof? And if so, what is one practical thing you can do for the person that you wrote down? What is one practical thing you can do to sacrifice yourself in the service of that person? Just one practical thing. Buying a bag of groceries, raking the leaves, going out of your way to talk with the person that everybody else avoids. I don't know. And if you don't have a name and you don't have a practical idea, maybe you could start here. The next time that you encounter someone who believes something differently than you or is completely different than you, the next time you encounter them, just try to not react like we usually do. No, they're dumb, they're wrong. That's what I do. Maybe you could start there. Try not to react. Try to remember this is a person that God individually designed and created and loves. Strategy. That is what social change looks like. It starts in these little relationships we have with each other. That is what Jesus chose to do with his world and it is what we are commanded to do with ours. But are you in? So we're not. Uh, we're not going to sing another worship song. I'm going to pray in a second, and that, and then we're going to go home. But if you would, I, I would love if you could stand with me for a minute. So listen, the vision of church. The vision of church that Jesus originally had was never designed ever to be these little clusters of people all around the world who come once a week and gather in an auditorium building and point the finger at the world and go, look how screwed up the world is, and pat ourselves on the back and feel good about ourselves, and then come back in seven days. That was the furthest from his vision for church that you could possibly get. Instead, his vision of church was to have a community of people like us to encourage one another, to remind each other that it's okay you screwed up, because it's all you and I are cruising into heaven on his grace and that alone. And because of that encouragement, then the other six days of the week, we are sent into the world to be living proof of when God said he doesn't want you to be hungry, I showed up. And the proof that when God said he, he has compassion for the poor, I cut a check. And when God said that the mournful and the, those who weep are blessed, I came and sat on your couch with you for an hour. That is what we're supposed to be doing the other six days of the week. That's the vision. And I don't know if your brain works like this. My brain is wired this way to dream and and envision stuff like this. I love stuff like this. I don't know if you can, but I can see it so clearly, the vision. There are thousands of us who go here. I'm one of them. There are thousands of us. What would it look like if we took this seriously? And spread out over the face of northern Colorado as the actual living proof that God's kingdom is good and merciful and gracious and just and it's alive and it's well and it is here. What could happen to this beautiful state that we live in? I don't think it's idealism. I don't think it's naive. Jesus taught it and did it. But are we in? And I hope we are. Because we are looking at a society and we are watching a culture that is grasping at straws for justice and grace and mercy and compassion and we are the ones who hold it within us. So let's go be sent into the world to prove it. I'm gonna pray. Dear God, I love you and I thank you. I thank you for the goodness of your kingdom, God. I thank you for the justice and mercy and grace and righteousness, the forgiveness, the humility, all of it. All the beautiful, wonderful aspects of your kingdom of, of who you are and who you want your people to become and how you want us to interact with the world. I thank you for being ultimately just good. But there's a couple of different types of people in, in the room today. God, first of all, there, there's people like me. We feel very convicted about this. God, for, for those of us in the room and for me, I ask for forgiveness. Please, God, forgive me for being selfish, for being a hypocrite, for sitting around and and reading about you every day and writing talks about you constantly, about how much you care for the down and out and that I never do it. Please forgive me for that. And then God, give us the strength to go be sent into our neighborhoods and our offices and into our friendships and into our society. Teach us what it looks like to do something that is so contrary to our human nature, which is sacrifice ourselves on the, for the service of other people. Help us to do something in our hearts for that. And then God, the other type of the person in the room right now is, that, is the one who you know more than anyone else. They really don't have it in them right now. They really don't have the, the, the ability to do this right now because they are the down and out. They are the broken, the mourning, the broke, the addicted. Down and out, God, for the people who are down and out here, God, please help us as a community to do what you commanded us to do, which is to take care of our own and take care of the down and out. God, for the people in this room that are down and out, I pray for your grace, I pray for your compassion, I pray for one little glimpse this week that you are real, that you are involved in their lives, that you've not let go of them. And God, whatever role that we can play in this community, in the lives of the down and out, please help us to do that. Ultimately, God, I pray for what you said is true and what you said you would do. God, I pray for the vision and passion inside of our hearts. I pray that we could get it and catch fire for it and be sent out into northern Colorado to not just be that one uh, uh, church that has cool music and cool lights and that's a cool place. I'm thankful for all those things and I love this place, but God, help us to do what you commanded us to do, which is come in here, be encouraged, be convicted, but leave with grace and mercy and forgiveness and passion to be sent into the world and to change your people and to change ourselves. God, please change us and change others through us. I thank you for this place. I thank you for this community. Send us into the world. I pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ, amen.